You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I want to tell you the tale of two towns. They're in the Deep South, and they both have something unusual in common. One of them is Remlap, which is in Alabama. It's just north of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And the other is Treblock, and that is in Mississippi, just south of Tupelo. And the reason that they have something in common is the fact that these names are formed by spelling other words backwards. So Palmer and Colbert are Colbert. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, there's something about that word remlap that immediately makes you think that it's a word backwards. Right, yeah. or, or something out of a science fiction novel or, or mm-hmm. something. But yeah, these terms are called anonyms, A-N-A-N-Y-M-S, anonyms. And that's a special kind of anagram that forms a name because you're taking a word and spelling it backwards. So... Um, uh, Remlap and Treblock. Remlap and Treblock. And they're where? Uh, Remlap is in Alabama, mm-hmm. and Treblock is in Mississippi. And in fact, in Kentucky, my home state, uh, the town of Combs, C-O-M-B, mm-hmm. used to be called Lennett. Lennett. L-E-N-N-U-T. Tunnel? It was near a tunnel. Oh. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> and then they changed the name. That's outstanding. You know, for a while, my siblings and I, I had four siblings, we would say our names backward. And mine actually kind of works. Tanarg. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I'm Athram Edinrab. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> That's not bad. Tanarg to Rab. That's me. <laughs> I'll share another anonym later in the show. Uh, and in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you about any aspect of language whatsoever. Call us, 877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. This is Donna. I'm calling from Ithaca, New York. Excellent. Well, welcome, Donna. What can we do for you? So I have a very interesting phrase that I've used. For many years, I've been saying to my family, I've had the radish. And I, and I use it when I become frustrated with a project or with someone and I need to walk away from it. I don't remember any of my family members ever using this phrase um, when I was growing up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. But every time I say it, everybody always kind of smiles at me and because it's kind of recognized as my go-to remark. And I'm just interested in hearing from you and knowing when you think uh, when and where I might have picked it up. So when you say, I've had the radish, you're just absolutely, what, frustrated, exhausted? Frustrated, walking away. Yeah. Uh, if I'm working on a project and it just isn't working for me mm-hmm. and I'm not going to complete it. I'll kind of throw my hands up and say, I've had the radish. Got it. And have you used this your whole life or since you got to Ithaca? I don't ever remember using it growing up in Massachusetts, so... Yes, I've used it here in New York for the entire time that I've lived here. I will tell you, and now in Ithaca, for the people who don't know, position it in the state of New York first. It's to the east, right? It's upstate. Upstate, yes. How, but to the east upstate, right? Um, to the to the west upstate, um, oh, really? central, kind of south central. of Syracuse. Okay, gotcha. Finger Lakes. It's in the Finger, Finger Lakes. Lakes. Okay. The reason I asked because it's a little far out from the center of where we know lots of people actually say, I've had the radish, and that's in Vermont. 
We do find some instances of people using it, of course, in New Hampshire and, and, and eastern New York, which is why I was trying to pin that down. So it's not your expression alone. It is something. But it really belongs to that part of the country, though. It doesn't exist outside that, outside that area. That's very interesting because after I graduated from college, I lived in Vermont for five years. Mm-hmm. Before moving to Ithaca, New York, uh-huh. that makes that makes a, that that clicks for me. So you will find this expression. I've had the radish pop up in New England, but Vermont is the it's known to be the home for it. It's almost what I would call a chamber of commerce word, which is people from Vermont know that they say this expression and they're rather proud of it. So as to the origins of it, there are some theories floating around that I give no quarter to. But the one that is most likely, the one that any etymologist would prefer is that it comes from a French expression. And the French expression is n'avoir plus un radis, which means to not have a radish any longer, or to not have a radish, or je je n'ai plus un radis. I don't have a radish. And I know that it's the opposite of I've had the radish, but the thinking is in the French expression, which means I'm broke, I don't have any money, I'm exhausted, my funds are exhausted, my resources are depleted, that there's a flip there because not only do you not have a radish, you ate the radish or the radish is already gone that you uh-huh. did have. So it's an extension of the French expression, I believe, and as do other people who've looked into this term. Very interesting, Grant. Well, that solves the mystery, and I probably picked it up in those few years in Vermont. Mm-hmm. The other part of this that makes me think that it comes to French, besides the proximity of Vermont to French-speaking Canada, is there's also a French expression which is Tenir son radis, which means to have one's radish. And that is means you fight or defend something vigorously. And if you've had the radish, it means you are no longer capable of defending or fighting vigorously. You're done with the battle, which is why I've had the radish, radish to mean um, I'm finished, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm, I'm sick of this. That it makes perfect sense to me. I can see the logical progression between the French into the English. Good. Well, you've... Solve the mystery for me. Excellent. Thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So the quibble I might have with that argument is how does it go from meaning I'm broke, I have no money, to meaning I'm exhausted? And that's just because we have these similar verbs in both languages, French and English, where to be depleted could be resources like money or could mm-hmm. be energy or mm-hmm. or or interest even, yeah, or, or yeah. ambition. Sure, it makes sense to me. Yeah, just it's a kind of both talking about a kind of depletion. Yeah, I've had it. Yeah, I'm done. I'm exhausted. Yeah, Dunsky. Yeah. 877-929-9673. We had a conversation a few weeks ago about uh, how you talk about your age once you start getting up there. How do you describe how old you are and and euphemistic ways to Mm -hmm. say it? And people uh, suggested 50 plus or I'm a member of the 600 month club. You Mm -hmm. remember that one? Or I'm 29 plus shipping and handling, that kind (laughs) of thing. We got a voicemail from Gene Terriak in Greenwood, Indiana, who said that uh, his mother-in-law used to say, I'm at that cute age. (laughs) (laughs) And so he and his wife have started using that as well. I'm at that cute age. Right. So you don't have to give an answer. Nobody yeah. needs the number. They yeah. just need to know that you feel good about yourself right now. Right, yeah. right. You're used to using that about little kids, right? <laughs> Six or seven age. or two or three. They're at that cute age. But yeah, I'm yeah. at that cute age. No, that be, works for any decade. Right. Yeah. You can be at that cute age anytime. Talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D.
Hello, you have a way with words. Ah, good morning. This is Eleni Wagner, and I'm from Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Welcome, Eleni. What can we do for you? Well, I have a friend who uh, refers to me as being a clothes horse. And where I grew up, that was not a compliment. She means it as a compliment. And where she grew up, it meant somebody who could wear clothes well or dressed well. Uh, Where I grew up, if you referred to someone as being a clothes horse, uh, it was not exactly derogatory, but it was like, well, they spend a lot of money on clothes. They're kind of obsessed about clothing all the time. And my friend is from Pennsylvania, and I'm from Wisconsin, so I don't know if that's part of the difference. Hmm. Did you take great offense when she said that, or was it just a little subtle thing? Kind of like a, one of those little jabs, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah. oh, wait a minute. Um so I, I finally said something, and she said, well, I mean that as a compliment. Where I come from, that's a compliment. And I'm like, so I always, every time she does that, I have to kind of take a deep breath, and it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> she means that you wear the clothes well, that you look nice, and, and, and you wear nice clothes, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, you're stylish. I've seen it as positive, but by far and away, it's usually negative. Throughout the history of the figurative use of clothes horse, it's almost always poking fun at somebody for spending too much time and money on their appearance. Well, and, and that's how I always took it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do find off and on throughout history it's kind of neutral because there are circles of people where spending a lot of time and money on your appearance is a good thing. It is the way that you are meant to present yourself to the world, particularly for women. Um, there's parts of our culture where even now that's the thing that you do. You spend money on clothes, and so maybe they wouldn't see clothes horses derogatory. It just meant that you looked nice, you dressed nice. They hang nicely upon your frame. <laughs> and you know what a clothes horse is, right, originally? No, I don't. Oh, okay. This is a drying rack for clothes. This is a, oh. a kind of a frame, a frame. A frame that you, you know, you, you wash your clothes by hand, perhaps, and then you hang them on the frame so that there are no creases or knobs or bumps in the wrong places, so they, they dry flat or dry straight. Was it in the shape of a horse, and that's how that came about, or roughly, what? It's got four legs. It's kind of like a sawhorse. You know, it's got four legs and roughly like a, a, a backbone or a spine, and there are a variety of different shapes for these, but generally they, they sit on the ground on four legs. Yeah, it's it sort of has that same function as a horse when you think about draping a blanket over a horse. Very good, yeah. Um, you oh, know, our, okay. our word easel oh, okay. has the same idea in it. It comes from a Dutch word that means donkey. Oh, easel. Because it bears oh. the... <laughs> You know, it bears the weight of the of the painting. Okay. Yeah, I've oh. always had a sense of clothes horses being a little bit, just like you put a little bit too much emphasis on clothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just yeah. wearing your clothes; it's mm-hmm. it's it's showing them off. Okay. Well, I you know, like I say, I every, every time she says that, I you know, I it's like okay, she means it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. And, because I, you know, I don't think of myself that way. Yeah, but it sounds like she was using it admiringly. So if right? she's a, if she's right, a true friend right. and not a frenemy, take her word for it and just accept it as a compliment. And I'm and I'm working on that. Elaine, <laughs> <laughs> right. thank you for your call. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. All right, take care. Have now. a good Thanks day. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. 
we were talking earlier about the word radish, and as a matter of fact, I was talking about the word radish over sushi the other night with some friends. It goes all the way back to the Latin word radix, which means root, and uh, the stem of of that word is R-A-D-I-C, which is the root of a lot of other cool words, like, for example, radical. If you're radical, you have this fundamental, something really fundamental about you. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you talk about the square root of, say, four, that's radical four, which is two, right, in Mm -hmm. mathematics. And another word that's related to that uh, whole linguistic family is eradicate. If you eradicate something, you pull it up by the roots. Oh, nice. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So if I'm skating really well on my skateboard and I say, that was radical, right. oh. um, <laughs> it goes back to having good roots? No. It's, it's gone a ways. It's, it's taken a journey <laughs> since then. Taken a journey. <laughs> English will do that. English is rad. <laughs> Come take a journey with us, 877-929-9673. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And joining us on the line from New York City is our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hey, John. Hey, Martha. Hi, Grant. Hey, bud. Hey. So, you know, uh, we did a quiz on Aussie slang a little while ago, and it inspired me to look at kangaroos. Specifically, that particular form of recreational linguistics known as a kangaroo word. Are you familiar with those? Mm, is it a word tucked in another word, like a kangaroo sort of, pouch? Sort of, yeah, it, it very much so. A kangaroo word is a word that contains within it a synonym of itself. Oh. Right. Now, the letters might be all together, such as in the word alone, which contains the word lone, hmm. but that's, you know, low-hanging mangoes for serious word players like us. <laughs> uh, a better one is the word devilish, which contains the word... Evil. Evil, yes, very good. Now... What I like even more is a kangaroo word in which the letters are in order, but they're not together, such as the word curtail, which contains the word, anyone? Cut. Cut, yes, C-U-T, right there. So now you know how a kangaroo word works. So we're going to work with just those kangaroo words where the letters are in order, but they're not together. Let's see if you can tell me the Joey words, that's what they're called, inside each of the following kangaroo words. You might need a paper and pencil for this one. It'll help. Ready? Here we go. The first word is respite. Rest. Mm -hmm. Rest. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, Next one is observe. See. See. S-S-E-E. Very good. Let's try honorable. Able? No. No. Hmm. Hmm. Honorable? Has noble. Honorable. What's that? Noble. Oh, oh, right. Noble, yes. Very good, Grant. Let's try this one. Destruction. Destruction. Yeah. Um. Huh. Ruin. Ruin uh, is correct. Yes, very good. I kept trying to work with that C. Ah. This one might be a little challenging, too. It's another three-letter word you're looking for. The, the, uh, the uh, kangaroo word is substandard. Substandard. Good gravy. Oops. Um. 
bad. Bad is oh, right. Oh, good. I was just sitting here looking at the word, and I just realized the word sad could also be substandard. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's pretty fine, too. Yeah, those are called twin, twin kangaroo words oh, with two joeys. Yeah. Let's try the word strives. Strives. Tries. Strives. Strives. Tries. Tries. Okay, yes, very good. good. I actually like this one very much. The word prematurely. Prematurely. Early. Early oh, is correct. Yes, this, very man. good. That's now, great. I, I have a lot of friends who collect different kinds of wordplay, oh. and I encourage, that is, urge you to leave the real kangaroos alone and collect your own set of kangaroo words. So hop to it, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. We'll talk Thanks, to you guys. next week. Take See care of you yourself. Well, you know, we are interested in bending your brain. If you've got a question, we've got answers. 877-929-9673. Your email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Lisa calling from North Carolina. Well, hello, Lisa. What can we do for uh, you? And where are you in North Carolina? I am in Wilmington on the coast. Oh, Lovely. Nice. How can we help? I am calling to ask about the phrase, who struck John? My grandmother, who was born in 1905 in Baltimore, used this phrase when I was a child. And I always thought it meant confusion, foolishness, or bad behavior. If my friends and I were cutting up in the house, she would say, we're not going to have any who struck John in this house. And that meant be quiet and settle down. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we thought. I was wondering where the phrase came from, if you knew. Um, and... Um, if it's just a black community thing, because one of my friends who grew up in North Carolina, um, she said that she heard that phrase growing up as well. Wow. Uh, there's a lot here that I love. One is I love the expression cutting up to mean fooling around or cutting yeah. a dido or <laughs> messing about. <laughs> so traditionally, Who Struck John describes a situation where there's a lot of blame to go around, but, but nobody can really come to an agreement as to who is at fault. You might find it in politics, for example. So Who Struck John is about an argument that goes nowhere or a debate that has no end. So I think what your grandmother, was your grandmother? Yes. I think what she was saying was, I don't care who started it. I don't want to hear your arguments. Just stop it. (laughs) Um, It's not necessarily a black community thing, although there's no reason it couldn't also be a part of that. It dates at least to the early 1900s. But there's a really... Two curious things about it. It had a resurgence in the 1950s after World War II when kind of modern American politics really got started and these big national debates that we're still fighting now started to happen. And there was a newspaper columnist by the name of Jimmy Cannon who had a book published in 1956 that used the title Who Struck John? And he apparently was very fond of the term. So you'll find, if you look in newspaper databases, you'll just find Who Struck John everywhere, even when they don't mention his particular book. But earlier than that, the interesting thing is, before Who Struck John, people didn't say Who Struck John. They said, Who Struck Billy Patterson? And we don't know who John was, and we don't know who Billy Patterson Mm. was, although there's been a lot of speculation that I won't go into. But the Billy Patterson version of the saying, exactly the same meaning, like a lot of debate, a lot of argument that can never be resolved, dates to the 1840s. And that, by the way, probably comes from a minstrel song that was sung on stage by black performers. I don't have that song with me, but apparently in the song, somebody is trying to get to the bottom of who hit his brother. Oh. 
And so the whole thing is this never-ending, unanswerable question about who hit his brother. And it's a comic piece, apparently. Mm. So anyway, so it goes back quite a ways. Again, I don't know why it switched to John in the early 1900s, but there's a, a serious, like, definitely a bridge between these two expressions, who struck Billy Patterson and who struck John. They're used in exactly the same way, just the name changed. Mm-hmm. Lisa, so, what do you think of that? I am surprised and shocked. Glad to know that there is a historic grounding in that phrase, which was just so common when I was growing up. So, so you were cutting up a lot? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> no, not quite. Perfect, I, I kind of thought it was um, a euphemism for a curse word, oh. um, MFS. <laughs> Since oh. it flows kind of rhythmically, a lot of who struck John, a lot of MFS. Oh. So I was wondering if it was a curse word, but I'm glad it was not a euphemism. <laughs> No, I know that it has a historic basis. <laughs> yeah, as far as we know, not a euphemism. Okay. Thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it, Lisa. Thank you. Y'all have a great you day. You too. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Here's a lovely quotation that's attributed to Sigmund Freud. Everywhere I go, I find a poet has been there before me. What was the context of that? Do you know? Well, actually, I started doing some digging, and as lovely as that quote is, is not from Sigmund Freud. It was some influencer last year <laughs> on Instagram? Well, yeah, and it's on a lot of posters now. Everywhere I go, I find a poet has been there before me. I mean, it's sort of uh, lovely to think about Sigmund Freud thinking about human consciousness mm-hmm. and... Uh, admitting that poets have been there long before he ever got there, or you could say it of yourself, but uh, the Freud Museum in the UK has done some digging on this, and they say that he's not on record as having said this, and it's probably a corruption of another quote from him, which is, the poets and philosophers before me discovered the unconscious. What I discovered was the scientific method by which the unconscious can be studied. Hmm, yeah. That happens, right? Inevitably, that quote will end up in the mouth of Shakespeare, Lincoln, or right. Right, or Einstein. <laughs> right. I know there's another one that's uh, attributed to Freud. Time spent with cats is never wasted. Did he say that one? Uh, no, he didn't. As a matter of fact, he wrote to a friend, I, as is well known, do not like cats. He was much more of a dog person. Oh, interesting. But I still like the quotations. Right. Yeah, that's a hard <laughs> thing. I just always... Fall in love with the quotation, but don't pay attention to the attribution because they're so often wrong. Yeah, yeah. Visit Quote Investigator. Oh, yeah. Quote, inv- quote Investigator. Great stuff. 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. Hi. Who's Thanks this? for taking my call. Yeah, sure. Oh, Richard White in uh, Texas. Richard, welcome to the show. How can we help? Well, something that's always puzzled me is uh, one time I was visiting relatives up in Iowa, and there's a town that we drove through with an unusual name. And the name is What Cheer. The, the two words, W-H-A-T-C-H-E-E-R, What Cheer. And I thought, what, what does that mean? I've always puzzled over what that meant. Uh-huh. And did you ask around? Well, somebody was saying there in town that it had something to do with the Civil War, something like a Civil War greeting or something. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of a puzzle. But that's all I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what cheer has long been a uh, friendly greeting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, what I find really interesting about it is the word cheer itself in English. Um, 
means simply an emotional state or, or a disposition or, or a mood or a humor. And so you can have sorry cheer, you can have dull cheer, you can have heavy cheer, or you can have wrathful cheer. Uh, those are all examples of, of words that have been used in connection with cheer. So when you're saying what cheer to somebody, you're asking how you doing? What kind of mood are you in? Mm-hmm. And there are different stories floating around about why that particular expression was applied to a name in eastern Iowa. There's one story that goes that um, one of the early residents um, was originally from Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, wanted to do something in honor of his hometown. And apparently the expression, what cheer, was was closely associated with Providence, Rhode Island, and, and the idea that uh, when European settlers came to that site in Rhode Island, they were greeted by Native Americans there who said, what cheer, Neetop? which means Nitop in the Narragansett language means friend. So it may have something to do with that, but that's just one of the stories that's floating around about why it's called What Cheer. And they literally were speaking English because they'd gotten it from other Mm -hmm. settlers, right? Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, in the 1600s, Europeans landed in what is now Rhode Island. The Native Americans greeted them with What Cheer. Mm -hmm. Somebody from Rhode Island moved to Iowa. When they needed a name for the town, he possibly suggested it, and then they used it. Yes, that's that's one of the stories. One of the floating, stories, gotcha. Floating around now, the Civil War story. There's not much to that because the expression is 400 years older than the Civil mm-hmm. War, right? So today we would say, "How you doing?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. How you feeling? Yeah. How goes it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I like what cheer. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I just really enjoyed it. That's really amazing. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for calling. Call us again sometime. Okay. All right. Bye bye. So there's a Harry Potter connection I want to make. What? Have you seen the movies or read the books? I'm reading them now. So there's a character named Tonks who can change her physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And she's known for saying Watcher. Oh, W-O-T-C-H-E-R. Yep, yep. That's and another... Watcher mm-hmm. is a, a abbreviated kind of a abridged form of what cheer. Uh-huh. And it's used in, uh, sometimes it's described to the Cockneys or East London, but it's generally kind of a middle or lower class greeting to say hello to somebody. Yeah, W-O-T-C-H-E-R, right? Yeah, so if you read Harry Potter and wondered about Watcher, it's a form of Watcher, basically, how you doing? How about that? See, I didn't know because I'm told I'm still a squib, whatever that means. (laughs) I don't know what it means yet because I'm still working on book two. Born to a magical family, but you don't have powers. (gasps) Oh, is that it? (laughs) Oh. A muggle is born to a oh. non-magical family and doesn't have powers. I, I knew that about <laughs> muggles, but but my the <laughs> I did not know that. I, other, I, people keep telling me I'm a squib, and they wouldn't tell me why. And to plug this into literature in another place, Shakespeare used a what cheer in at least three yes. of his plays. Uh-huh. So what cheer has kind of been there in the anglosphere for a very long time yeah. and pops up again and again. You have to just connect the pieces, as we always say on the show. Every word has a story. It leaves an imprint. There's a spore. Yep. And that's a great one. And now I want to adopt that. <laughs> Watcher. Watcher. Might sound a little fake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll finish the Harry Potter series first. 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. I'm Margaret Young from Denton, Texas. Hey, Margaret. What's up? Okay. So uh, I spent about 22 years in northern New Mexico. I worked for a university there in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And when I was working there... Uh, there is a you know there's there's three cities in northern New Mexico. There's Santa Fe, Las Vegas, and Taos, and it forms kind of a triangle. And in within that triangle, there are uh, people there who 
speak Spanish or they they grew up speaking Spanish but now speak English. And so when they speak, you know, when we're talking to them about everyday things, oftentimes they'll say something like, oh, you know, I I was going to go visit Joe uh, last night, but I landed up visiting Sue instead. So instead of using what we would normally hear somebody say, like, I ended up going the here or there, they, they use the term landed. And that's pretty, it's pretty universal for people that grew up and, and live in that area. It's, it's very common for the local people to say that. Another thing they say is they'll say, uh, well, you know, let's, let's go. I need to get down off the car instead of saying I want to get out of the car. Um, and so those are two things that come to mind that I that I hear on a regular basis, and I just wondered if you, you know, if this is something that's just specific to northern New Mexico. I, I, it seems to me that it might have something to do with uh, sort of their ancestry and the fact that a lot of folks uh, who live up there are are um, descended from, over time, some of them are even descended from some of the conquistadors that came up through the south, you know, through Mexico and, and uh, ended up in the Santa Fe area. Yeah, there's there's something to the heritage story there. It's just really about the language. To, to deal with the car one first, just to be clear, they're not climbing down off the hood of their Camaro when they're talking <laughs> about getting down off the car, right? They're opening the door and getting out of the seats. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah, and do you ever spend any time in Louisiana? Uh, no, I never have. The reason I ask is because this happens actually in Louisiana as well, where they talked about getting down off a car or down out of a car. Because both French and Spanish have a verb which directly translates into English as to get down off of or to, to come down out of a thing. So mm-hmm. in, in Spanish, you might say bajar del carro or bajar del coche, um, meaning get down out of the car. And in French, the verb is descendre, which means to get down out of. And so this expression is what we call a calque. C-A-L-Q-U-E. It's a literal word-for-word translation from language A into language B. Okay. It is, I do know that it exists very commonly in the Southwest in places that have a Spanish-speaking heritage. So it's more about the language heritage than the cultural heritage. And it also exists in Louisiana independently, and they came up separately. As for the other one, landed up in, I know that New Mexicans often talk about it as a landed up in, meaning to end up in a place as if it's theirs, but it's actually very widespread. It's common throughout the United Kingdom. It's used here and there throughout the United States. It might be a little more common in New Mexico, but it isn't particularly New Mexican at all to say I landed up in. This is a mix, obviously, of to end up in a place or to land in a place, meaning to arrive in a place. So more than likely, it keeps being reinvented. It's a really, I could see that happening over and over again, and it might become fixed in the local language. You'll find it in Irish novels. You'll find it in BBC commenters talking about it. You'll find it in forum threads from Australia. So it's not just that one part of the English-speaking world. I can almost picture somebody landing up on shore, you know, washing (laughs) up on shore like that. But it's also logical to land up at a place, right? To right. mean that you, that's where you, you fixed landed, your flag, you ended right? Up there. Yeah, I landed, yeah, I landed yeah. somewhere. But, it, you know, it's just, it, it's just, for me anyway, I had never heard it before. So it was just, it was kind of unique to the people that I knew in northern New Mexico. Well, like I said, I think it might be a little more common there. And I know they certainly, when you see a list of New Mexican slang that uh, people have put together, it sometimes shows, shows up on those lists. So they oh, do okay. believe that it's theirs. And sometimes that's enough to make it a local thing. I didn't know there was a list of New Mexican slang. Oh, yeah. Google it. New Mexican slang. You'll find wonderful things out there. Also look for Burkino slang, the slang of Albuquerque. Oh, yeah, from Albuquerque. Yeah. Right. Margaret, thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So the landed up isn't from Spanish, for example. No, the landed up isn't from Spanish. The landed mm-hmm. up is just a normal mixing mm-hmm. of two idioms in English to come up with a new one. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you want to learn some more of that Burqueño slang, just look for it on our website. If there's a word or phrase that's puzzled you, we'd love to hear about it. You can call us at 877-929-9673 or send your questions and comments and email to words at waywardradio.org. More about what we say and why we say it. Stay tuned to Away With Words. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And speaking of Martha... I was always pretty comfortable with my name, um, but I remember really clearly the first time I looked up the meaning of my name in one mm-hmm. of those baby name books, yeah. and it said that the name Martha means ladylike. Yeah. I was horrified. I mean, it, it comes from an <laughs> Aramaic word that means lady or, yeah. or housekeeper because it, the story of Martha and Mary in the Bible is about Martha being, you know, industrious and very domestic. And so I was horrified to see that my name meant ladylike because I was a tomboy and climbing trees and playing touch football with the guys in my neighborhood. Um, But my mother told me that it was an old-fashioned name and that it was going to come back in style someday. And when I was born, it was uh, the 63rd most popular name in the country, and now it's about the 750th. (laughs) So I'm still waiting for it to come back. But um, she mollified me. I never really had much of a desire to change my own name. Did you? I never wanted to change my name. I was always pleased that it was fairly uncommon I was never really all that common. It kind of peaked in the 90s and kind of slid down a little uh-huh. bit. But I um, never really wanted to change it, never cared very much. I don't even feel particular attraction to it. It's just who I am. That's mm-hmm. my name. It's just, just a label, mm-hmm. really. But I've known people. There was a, a boy in the fifth or sixth grade whose name was Steve. Mm-hmm. And one day he came to school and said, I want you to call me Jack. And he decided, and his mom had decided that they were going to call him Jack. He said something about his mom, said he looked like Jack Kennedy. And I think there might have been more to the story. But it's odd when somebody changes their first name around you, and you have to start and restart and and just kind of catch yourself saying, and when you should be saying Jack, right? Mm -hmm. Just interrupt that first old word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a friend who recently tried on a different name. Mm Uh, and she, because uh, she had some trauma associated with her original name, and she tried on this other name, and um, and people were really supportive of her. But after a few weeks, she she just decided I had to try it on to know that it didn't fit. Yeah, that exercise actually made her go back to her original name and uh, her memory of herself before that trauma occurred. I knew uh, somebody who worked in advertising with me, and her name was Polly, until she decided to call herself something else. She felt that she wasn't being taken seriously as a Polly, ah, P O L L Y, and so she changed to something. Um, a little more conservative, a little mm-hmm. more traditional, uh, but still exceptional in a way. So something memorable and just not like every other name. Mm-hmm. And I think it worked for her as far as I could tell. And I don't know that in that environment, in that particular office, she immediately got more respect. But I'm betting that in her whole life to come, people treated her differently and with a little more respect because she mm-hmm. wasn't called Polly. 
And we, you and I know people in common who have changed their names because of gender issues. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole big deal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes folks do try on new names to see what matches the Mm -hmm. person that they're going to be, right? Mm -hmm. This new place that they're finding themselves. Mm -hmm. We'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Did you have a a name that uh, you decided to get rid of and replace with another one? Or did somebody close to you change their name and you're having problems with it? Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send your stories in email to words at waywardradio.org. Hi there, you have a way with words. Hello, good morning. My name is Marcos Cavuzo, and I am from San Diego, California. Ah, welcome. What can we do for you? I just had two questions today that are related to sports. I'm an avid sports fan, and I'm also a personal trainer. And one of the examples is when an announcer will use the word English in a sport uh, having a ball if a player puts an exaggerated spin on it to make it curve a certain way. They might uh, say with some astoundment, wow, there was so much English on that. And I was just wondering uh, a little bit about the history of how that got started. That's a great one. Uh, and so we under- are we to understand that English on it means that it did something unusual? Yes, a extra dramatic spin of some sort to make the ball go in an unusual way. Right, yeah. It, it comes from billiards or snooker or pool or other games like that are played on the felt tables with balls and cues, that sort of thing. And it supposedly comes from the fact that the, the British players of snooker and games like that were the first to really understand how to use the spin of a cue ball in order to do new crazy things on the table. And they brought it to the United States where we started calling that effect on a ball English after the English themselves. Now, there are other theories that I think hold no water that you may find out there, but this is the most solid one that we have the most evidence for the furthest back. All the other theories are new, and there's, there's surmises that don't really have evidence, so I won't get into them. But the have you heard of body English as well? No, I have not. So body English is also sometimes when somebody contorts their body to do something extraordinary, thinking about somebody going up for a layup, and in order to get around their opponents, they've got to twist and turn to kind of really put that ball in the basket. That's called body English. But there's another kind of body English that I really like, which is the one where you've already thrown the ball or the dart or whatever, or and you're waiting for it to do something, and you're moving your body and your arms as if somehow you can control it from afar. Oh, yeah, when you go bowling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're oh, behind wow. a bowler. You're <laughs> bowling, and you're, like, <laughs> twisting your body to make the ball move. That's body English as well. It doesn't actually have any effect, but we all do it, don't we? Yes. So that's what we know about English, putting English on it. So I was just wondering, um, maybe it had to do with if English people were causing bad deals by spinning the truth or something like that. But no. Do you find anything like that? No, not at all. And it goes back to at least the mid-1800s, and it's from the very earliest days. It's from billiards or snooker or pool or similar games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And my other question is sports-related. Uh, when an announcer will use the word mustard, if a player is receiving a pass and it has been thrown too hard where they cannot control it and they end up dropping the pass, either fumbling it or hitting it out of bounds, they will sometimes say there was a lot of mustard on that one. Yeah. Yeah. We've, well, what was that? 2016, I think we talked about that on the show. You can look it up on our website, but the short version is to put the mustard on a ball means to add a little spice to it. Think about spicy mustard and the little the little bite that it has, the tang, the oomph. So it's just really using the food metaphor to mean um, 
something sharp's happening there, something really pungent and pointed. Yeah, you're not adding yogurt to it. No. You're adding mustard. <laughs> yeah, mustard. That's it. Yeah, it's, it's, I it's thought okay. that it might have something to do with spice, but I was also wondering if there was any evidence for maybe in baseball they've had different cases of pitchers using grease on the ball. <laughs> yeah. And then I was thinking maybe like a dark brown granular mustard may have been used as a way to grease the ball sometime. I think I think once that ball ended up in the in the umpire's hands that he would smell it, right? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, as far as I know, there's no evidence for that. The best source that we know for all baseball language is Paul Dixon's baseball dictionary. So if you have that, he's got a solid entry to on mustard. Okay. So it was usually first used in baseball? Yep, yep, comes from baseball and it's been used for many decades. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Marco, thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I love your show. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 877-929-9673. I was pleased to see that Tennessee lawmakers have passed a resolution that states that Appalachian English is a fully legitimate dialect and most deserving of the respect afforded other dialects of American English. Outstanding. I agree. Yeah, I would like to see that uh, same resolution passed by uh, our friends in the Northeast and the Northwest. Yeah, every dialect deserves that proclamation, right? Yeah. It's easy to pick on the small dialects that aren't part of the mainstream, but there's no reason to. Right. 877-929-9673. Hello, welcome to Away With Words. Hi, this is Amanda Hooper calling from Evansville, Indiana. Well, hello, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amanda. Thank you. What's up? Thank you. What can I do for you? Well, I am calling with a question regarding a phrase my mother often used when I was a child. And um, when I was growing up here in southwestern Indiana uh, in the 1980s, my mother would, we'll say, encourage my sisters and me to hurry, say, if we needed to leave the house for an appointment or finish a chore. She'd encourage us by telling us to hoop it up. She'd say, hoop it up, girls, or Amanda, hoop it up, and then we'd know it was time to get moving. Um, And now it's funny because my married name is now Hooper, and I use it with my own two kids nowadays. (laughs) But I've never heard anyone other than my mother use this phrase. Um, Of course, you hear it referencing basketball, but Uh my family has not been involved in sports or specifically basketball. And when I asked my mother about where she got it, she said her grandmother, so my great-grandmother, uh, would use it in the same way toward my mother and her siblings. Uh Uh, And she's not sure otherwise where it comes from. And Amanda, you said that she used this expression, hoop it up, to, quote-unquote, encourage you all to to get out of the house? Yes. Usually it came after kinder, more patient warnings. Hurry up, girls. It's almost time to go. And then finally, when she was probably at her wits end, it was, hoop it up, hoop it up. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense, really, um, because there's a long tradition of urging people along by making noise that that sounds like hoop or oop or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's the expression hoop it, which can mean to run away. And uh, if you if you're hooped out of something, you're driven out. Uh, okay. And uh, hoop it up is uh, another version of that. It sure sounds like it. Well, I had wondered if it was related somehow to maybe whoop it up, um, but she always said hoop, so Mm -hmm. um, 
so I was just curious about that history. Yeah, they're they're related for sure. Um, because some people do pronounce the H and and hoop like hooping cough, and some people mm-hmm. don't. And so they're, they're actually the same. They're the same expression. Hoop it up and whoop it up are the same. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? That's funny because my husband, we tease. Um, he often pronounces that H with the WH sound harder than um, than I do. So I tease him about that. So. I, I totally get that pronunciation difference now. So, so Martha, the, am I remembering correctly? This is related to the French oupla. It's H-O-U-P-L-A, right? Which, which, which is, is a cry of, which, yeah, to, excitement. to dogs or something Yeah, motivation like that. to the dogs hunting the animals. But also, it means excitement in English. We borrowed it in the word hoopla in English. Mm-hmm, yeah, so it's a vigorous motion accompanied by uh, noise that, that sounds pretty similar. Well, excellent. That that does a lot of uh, clarifying for me, and uh, and I just find it also fascinating. I'm a, a language teacher myself, so I love your show, and I love learning about the history of words and phrases and their evolution. So, so I'm so glad that you could answer this for me. Well, we're glad to help. Thank excellent. you, Amanda, so much. Thank you. All right, take care. You too. 877-929-9673. Someone with the Twitter handle NanKing said, 20 years ago, my friend Paul asked me, what's the word for a serving dish that's shaped like the dish it's going to serve? I still don't know the answer. Wow. Well, pickle dish shaped like a pickle? Yeah, or uh, or a fish plate that uh, like looks a like a fish. Yeah. Or, hmm. yeah. or Maybe the turkey it... plate that has a turkey on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is there a name? I am not aware of one. This is one I thought I would throw out to our listeners because I'm I'm not sure. The only thing that I could see that was remotely like that is epimorph, which is defined as a hollow shell or mold left by a mineral that had overgrown an initial mineral, which is dissolved away. That's <laughs> what somebody suggested, yeah. but it might just be a fish plate. Fish plate. Roly poly fish plate. Sometimes a fish plate is just a fish plate. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Mark Williams from Texas. Where in Texas are you, Mark? It's a big state. Uh, Louisville, Texas. Okay, Louisville. Welcome to the show, Mark. What can we do for you? As a young man, uh, cartoons used to only be on on Saturday morning, and uh, and then sometimes the uh, a show on Sunday nights would show like uh, Walt Disney cartoons. Um, there's a lot of cartoons that um, they had like automobile gags and like old old-timey cars and just, like, driver safety kind of cartoons. And and every once in a while, someone would do something as a mistake, and I guess another driver on the road near them would zoom past them and say, Sunday driver! <laughs> and, uh, I always wondered what Sunday driver, what that meant and what that where that originated from, because uh, I, I would rather do that than... than some of the other gestures and things that people shout in, uh, in traffic. <laughs> That's true. Those are pretty clear. We know what those mean. <laughs> Mark, you've been holding on to this question for a very long time. There haven't been regular Saturday morning cartoons for decades. Yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the serials that were around at that time have, have gone uh, out to pasture as well. Yeah, but you're bringing back mem- <laughs> memories for me because I can picture um, these cartoons where somebody, ha- you know, the window's down and they've got their arm out the window and they're shaking their fist and, and they're saying, Sunday drive. And the car's always chugging. It's always yeah. blowing yeah, a little yeah, too yeah. much spo- smoke and steam, right? And kind of bouncing <laughs> yeah. like a jalopy. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, like the Mel Blanc of, yeah. sound yeah. effect, right? <laughs> That's really good. The, the horns that go, huh? Like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The oogas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the expression Sunday driver is um, really pretty straightforward. It's it's those people who drive on Sundays, you know, not like the other working stiffs who are commuting to, to work. You so know, they you're only going, drive on Sundays, or well, they drive like it's Sunday. It, with a, yeah, you know, just a leisurely, you know, sort of like Mr. Mr. Magoo just kind of uh, leisurely <laughs> driving around and, and, you know, don't necessarily have a have a destination like the rest of us. There was a column in, in a, a, a set of newspapers back in 1928 where uh, a guy was complaining about the Sunday driver. And they, dis- they described him as a, uh, the Sunday driver is he who gets razzed by all of us old veteran drivers on Sunday. He doesn't go out during the week to practice. When he gets out into the heavy traffic on Sunday, he winds up in the ditch if he doesn't chase other drivers there first. And it just goes on and on and on complaining about uh, these drivers. And, of course, back in the 20s, you know, automobiles hadn't been around all that long, you know, and you're still trying to yeah. figure out how to work them and not end up in the ditch. But you're connecting to the point that I think needs to be made, which is the terms Sunday driver predates automobiles. It comes from horse and carriage days. Right. Yeah, so you might, um, the driver of a coach or the driver of a wagon could be called a Sunday driver because they spent six days a week on the farm and one day a week they drove to church or drove to town. And just kind of moseyed there. Yeah, kind of moseyed. (laughs) So you have like the the banking stagecoach passing by the um, little house on the prairie buggy as they're going in. Yeah, we go. That's it. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the idea of Sunday, too, has historically been associated with leisure, like a Sunday poet or... A Sunday you know, golfer. Okay. Yeah. Somebody who just does it once in a while, but not as a as a pro or even yeah. as a way to get good at it. Kind of like a weekend warrior, I guess, today. You know, that person who goes oh. out and exercises once a week. Sunday sailor is another one, and I've seen Sunday architect. Somebody who just dabbles in architecture but doesn't really know what they're doing. I guess I'm a Sunday cook. <laughs> Sunday cook, yeah. Thank you for a really fun question. I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna ring a lot of bells out there, and people are gonna go, "Oh yeah, yeah, top to bottom, yeah, starting I with like Saturday Night cartoons." We all remember that one Sunday driver, don't we? Yes, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care now. All righty. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Thanks to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director Colin Tedeschi, editor Tim Felton, and production assistant Tamar Wittenberg. You can send us a message, subscribe to the podcast, get the newsletter, or catch up on hundreds of past episodes at waywardradio.org. Our toll-free line is always open in the U.S. and Canada, 877-929-9673. Or send us your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. We're coming to you from the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.